Salt is pervasive. It seasons our food, enhances our senses, it preserves and it tenderizes. It coats our skin when we sweat and melts into our tongue as we eat. Salt disrupts agriculture, has spurred revolutions and treats aches and pains. Mined from ancient lakes, evaporated from oceans or bought at the corner store, salt is the grounding theme of this episode and a pivotal material for the artists we hear from. Hello and welcome to Canvas, FBI Radio's podcast, Unframing Art and Ideas. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the lands on which this episode has been researched and recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and the Wanga, Lurga and Janpa people of the Tharama region in the Northern Territory. We pay our respect to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be Aboriginal land. I'm your host Aisha Ash and this episode is SALT, the third and final episode in the three-part cluster bound together by the overarching theme of ground. These are exceptional times and we hope you are taking care wherever you are listening right now. This podcast has been recorded from physical distances using digital platforms instead of coming together in the recording studio. Bear with us when the audio quality reflects this at times. First, we chat with artist Keg D'Souza about her project, The Only Rock We Eat. In her artistic practice, Keg works with temporary architecture to make spaces to host decolonial dialogues in order to learn about place. And often, these conversations unfold over food. The Only Rock We Eat uses salt as a medium, or a seasoning if you will, to think about the future of food production and consumption. I'm Keg De Caesar. I'm an artist that lives and works on Gadigal land in Redfern, Sydney. I'm a settler here and someone whose own Goan ancestral lands were colonised. You know, a lot of the themes that come up in my work that I'm interested in, in exploring are things like colonisation and decolonisation or economics, taste, adaptation, urban development, resistance. I found stories that were about all these themes through salt. My background's in architecture and I also used to squat. So that kind of shapes my practice and my interest in spatial politics. And um, I often work with temporary architecture to create these spaces that host decolonial dialogues to learn about place. And these conversations often happen or unfold over food. I find that so interesting because a lot of things about POC cultures, minority cultures, non-white cultures, is that we connect over food. You know, that's how we share story and that's how we show love and find that really interesting and, and beautiful. Yeah, I think it's really important to locate ourselves and, like, who we are and, you know, where we sit and our kind of histories in order to kind of understand these connections that we all make. So talking about one of the works that you um, made with regard to food, can you describe your work, The Only Rock We Eat? The Only Rock We Eat was a performative meal that was based around salt and was first developed for Ace Open in Ghana, Adelaide. This project began from thinking about um, being located in amongst some incredible pink salt lakes and also being in the driest state, in the driest inhabited continent on earth with my Ghana-based scientist friend called Lucien Alperstein. So I invited him to help me develop this performative meal. And what happened was it traced narratives of salt 
from around the world through stories of salt as currency, the cause of wars and revolutions, as part of trade routes and urban development, and back to Ghana, where local agriculture is struggling to deal with these salinity conditions, um, coupled with a drought-prone environment. We began the meal with exploring, like, the ritual of throwing salt over your shoulder and Mm -hmm. into the face of the devil. The meal comprised of salt-tolerant plants and proposed a way that we can think of future food production and consumption by adapting our diets to suit the changing environment around us. Each little dish had a theme that associated with it and it was all placed around a plate in like this clock form formation. The story of, say, resistance was um, told through Gandhi's salt march across the Indian subcontinent to protest the imposed British salt tax. So the British had built basically, a, they called it salt, it was known as the salt hedge that went across the entire country to stop people illegally transporting salt because the British had closed all the Indian salt work and made it illegal to make salt there and people were forced to buy, you know, expensive British imported salt from Cheshire. It's just bizarre. Don't you, you just think, what were people thinking? Yeah, it's like, <laughs> what? This is, yeah, this reality just, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah. So, yeah, during this salt march, Gandhi walked across the country with a whole bunch of people um, to to the coast where um, he ground up some salt in his hands, which was illegal because he was making salt. So from the coast he ground up salt. And I guess this was like his first, this is kind of called his first act of rebellion against colonial rule at the salt works in Dundee where... um, thousands of Indians were beaten and jailed and I guess this violence also brought a lot of international attention to what was happening in India and made people question British occupation so these kind of events to do with salt eventually led on to revolution and independence so you hear this story and in the meal this story is told as we sort of as we ate Indigenous salt tolerant desert lime pickle that was served with poppadoms. How did your relationship to salt change? Like, are you yourself a big consumer of salt purposely? I know, like, there's sodium in a lot of things, but I, for example, put salt on everything. Like, it's a sickness. (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of funny because um, I've got a three-year-old and we stopped putting salt in our food when he was born. (laughs) So we don't with any salt but ironically have like a whole range of salt in the house basically because of this project which is kind of funny I definitely feel like I think about it a lot a lot more and I think about how our body actually needs salt to Mm. survive so we don't have salt it's like it's an essential mineral and I never thought of salt in that way um which I think is really interesting like it's you know it's always it's a part of us and it's an essential part of us um And also I think a lot about the salt in the ocean and how that sort of, how that connects people as well. So I grew up in um, Perth on Noongar country and on one side of the Indian Ocean and my family is from Goa on the other side of that ocean. Salt crosses through the diets of every culture as well as being essential to our survival. We're struggling to deal with this excess of it. So our soil is 
becoming increasingly saturated with salt due to the clearing of native vegetation um, for agriculture and grazing lands. The sort of environmental effect is widespread and it includes like losing fertile soil, erosion, salt seepage into rivers um, and all of that's, you know, ultimately changing our entire ecosystem. The Crystal Speakers is an artwork that I've been working on for quite a while, a few years actually, um, and it's one part of a larger series of artworks about exploring the environmental aspects of electronic circuits. The uh, internal raw material constituents of what electronics are made out of, and this is often what's stuck up from the ground, say copper, lead, cadmium, gold, mica, all those sort of trace elements that are found within the individual components in a circuit. What these minerals are actually doing inside the electronics is to help expand humans' perception of the environment. So in the example of radio, certain rocks and minerals in a circuit might be tuned to specific electromagnetic frequencies, which are then transduced into the audible frequency range of the human ear. So I found it somewhat ironic that you have um, kind of these earthen minerals within uh, the objects of technology which then get used to sort of expand out to explore our environment. There's two parts to the crystal speaker work. There's the speakers themselves and there's the recording that's being played through them. The speakers are not so much handmade, but hand-cooked. Originally, I really wanted to use quartz. I imagined these wonderful big lumps of quartz rocks with sound coming out of them. And I did attempt to do this, but the quartz didn't work so well. And the next best option was Rochelle salt. Rochelle salt is known for being a highly piezoelectric material, which is what I needed for these uh, crystal speakers to work. So I had to cook these salt crystals in the kitchen using um, a combination of potassium bitartrate and sodium carbonate. Uh, after many attempts, I managed to cook these salt crystals, which were large enough to basically become speakers. And what they're doing is they're acting as transducers. They take electrical signal from the sound source and they convert it into mechanical pressure. Uh, so what happens is the crystal structure of the salt actually warps and moves and creates vibration that travels to our ears, um, which we obviously hear as sound. So to help this, I used um, copper sheet metal and a little bit of aluminium um, that sort of rests against the, the crystal and it sort of um, shimmies and jiggles and creates these um, nice vibrations which gives the sound a bit of colour and texture um, which is what we're hearing. It's like the movement of the metal against the rock. The sound being played through the speakers is um, essentially radio but it's not the type of radio transmitted by humans. It's signal emitted from distant lightning strikes. So lightning emits a burst of radio signal, um, which then travels at the speed of light around the globe and even goes out to the outer reaches of the Earth's atmosphere. 
And as it does this, it naturally becomes filtered and manipulated by its travels. When it's transduced by a radio receiver into sound, um, these distant lightning strikes end up sounding like these resonant pops and crackles and chirps. These are what are known as spherics or tweaks. So played through these salt rocks are the sound of the atmosphere. Ultimately, the work is about the environment. It's about the potential of natural materials to manipulate energy. And it's also about natural electrical energy that exists all around us. It's sort of a result of pondering how technology like radio could be thought of as maybe the earth listening to the sky or even the sky expressing itself through the earth. we heard from Keg D'Souza chatting about her performative meal project, The Only Rock We Eat, tracing salt around the world through stories of salt as currency, the cause of wars and revolutions, as part of trade routes and urban developments, and all the way back to Kerner, Adelaide Plains, where local agriculture is struggling with changing salinity conditions. After Keg, we heard the audio from Crystal Speakers. This artwork by Sydney-based artist, educator and researcher, Emily Morandini uses salt to sit at the juncture between materials and electrical energy, exploring and revealing the electrical, physical and environmental processes that underlie our modern electrical devices. Next, we chat with Yasmin Smith about her work, Drowned River Valley. This poetic ceramic work delves into the history of salt in New South Wales, its productions, the utilisation of sodium-rich plants by Indigenous peoples, the salt cooperatives of early colonial settlements in Sydney and the use of salt evaporation furnaces. My name is Yasmin Smith and I'm an Australian artist based in Sydney. I produce mainly ceramic artworks and I travel a lot around Australia and in the last couple of years a few international projects to make site-specific ceramic installations. I work within the parameters of ceramics to produce installations from materials that I collect from a particular site, whether that's using plants to create ash glazes or salt to make salt glazes. So from each location, the artwork is a product of the site and each project is then comparable from one place to the next. So I'm creating an archive of places using organic and inorganic materials transposed into ceramic glazes and forms. Drowned River Valley was a work that I created in 2018 for the Sydney Biennale and it was a participatory work in that the audience was invited to be a part of the the labour of the production of some aspects of the artwork. But overall to describe the finished artwork it is a collection of cast ceramic turpentine wharf sleepers that I collected from Cockatoo Island and cast ceramic mangrove branches that I collected with local bush regeneration groups on the Parramatta River. And both those collections of objects were glazed in the ash of the original specimens. For example, the mangrove branches that I collected, I then burnt down to ash and used that ash to form a glaze, which I then applied to the outside of the ceramic replicas. 
And alongside those pieces was a collection of 576 small handmade cups that the public made during a one-month period on Cockatoo Island. For the exhibition itself, I had set up an outdoor studio on the island where I built a kiln, and previous to the exhibition beginning, along with collecting those other wood objects that I described, I also harvested salt from Sydney Harbour by solar evaporating 2,000 litres of water from Sydney Harbour over a year. Throughout the process of material collection, I was also researching a lot about the history of salt, particularly in the early colony of New South Wales. Salt was such a valuable commodity because of its ability to preserve food, particularly meat. And this goes hand in hand with the development of societies, especially the spread of societies across the globe, because it meant that people could travel food. And when Europeans arrived in Australia, they needed to work out ways to collect salt because they didn't have local knowledge of what plants to use to introduce sodium into their diets, which Indigenous people had the knowledge of. So the Europeans brought with them European techniques for the harvesting of salt, such as salt farms and furnaces. If we go back to the work, Drowned River Valley, let me just describe the process of the involvement of the public. They would come to the Cockatoo Island and I had set up the outdoor studio and built a salt kiln on site, which was where I would eventually fire the cups that the public made. They hand pinched these cups out of clay that I made using sandstone from Barangaroo. Those cups would then be filled with the high saline water that I had previously evaporated and sit on top of a medieval style salt furnace to finish off the evaporation process. So we were getting salt crystals together in a communal salt harvesting process. From there, the cups would go into the salt kiln and I'd fire that to around 1200 degrees Celsius. And at that temperature, the atoms of sodium and chloride that form salt volatilize and split apart. The bond that held them together is broken under the high heat. So if you can imagine sodium and chloride are bonded together in this salt romance and when they split apart the sodium then becomes kind of floppy and it's flying around the kiln searching for something to solidify itself again. It no longer has the chloride to make it whole so it actually attaches itself to the silica that is in the clay body of the cups. It changes the materiality of the clay from silica into sodium silicate. So it forms a new material. In the process of salt firing, the material itself is changed. So there is no barrier or separation between clay and glaze, but rather a gradual change of the material from glass to clay. Salt is essential for life, for human and biological life. It's got this real essence to it because it's everywhere. At the same time as it being on a chip, it's also necessary for the contraction of muscles in the human body. It helps our heart to beat. It's tied to early life on Earth and we can't really escape it. It's inside you. And I think in Australia, well, for people that live on the coast, we are quite tied to the ocean and its cultural significance. You've been listening to Canvas, 
Unframing Art and Ideas Through the Episode Salt, the third and final podcast in a three-part series of episodes unfolding within the theme of ground. Stay tuned for details of our next episode cluster under the theme of salt water. You can listen back to past episodes and subscribe for more on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and connect with us via our Instagram at canvas underscore FBI 94.5. Canvas is brought to you by myself, Aisha Ash, researchers Elena Zorowski and Jazz Money, audio editor and producer Kanika Kopalani, digital coordinator Isabella Sanasi, and executive producer Anna May Kirk. The textural jingle bookending our episodes is by artist and musician Jack DeLacy. Thank you to all the artists that have contributed art and ideas to this episode, both in and outside of the podcast. We are releasing lots of supporting info around each episode, including resources, extended interviews and more. So head to fbiradio.com slash canvas to dive in. We leave you with Caribbean Film Collective as they discuss their desire to remain connected to their individual countries through ancestral actions and saltwater tides that made and connect their lands. The Caribbean Film Collective is an award-winning group of some 30 filmmakers and artists, most of whom are Indigenous to the lands and coasts along North Western Australia. In the Emiangle Indigenous language, Caribbean means tied out. It refers to a time of coming together, as well as to the coastline that connects the Caribbean Film Collective as an extended family group across social lines. This discussion took place at Mabaluk on the south side of Anson Bay in the Northern Territory between Elizabeth Pervinelli, Rex Edmonds, Cecilia Lewis and her daughter Natasha Lewis. I thought maybe we could just start by explaining to listeners what carving means. Carving means Rex and Cecilia, you think it's really important for listeners to understand that everybody in Carving has their own country, um, that there are different language groups, different dreamings in it, but that even as everybody has their own country, it's really important for Karabing, for you, that listeners understand the basis of that is this connectedness. Karabing, we all one. We're five different groups. Mabuluk map, Madi map, and Murumuru. You got Trevor map, the Tulna Teru, and you got Inger and Sitero, and we got the Kogon map too, and Karabing. And then we got Nungari. So those are all the different dreamings, sacred sites that various families within Karabing have. So everyone has their own sacred sites and land, but you're still all connected. That's like we got Sunto group, we have Kio. We are Ronda got the own place and own story, like we are all country. We got travel map, we got their own country, we got budget map. own language, own story. We got budget map, they got their own story. Emiangan got their own story, and Pablo. Mendiangan got their own story, or Kugun map. But we still one map. But we all married in one big family. Language group, around the but coast we all one map. Because we connect with the same coastline here. Yeah. Oh. That's how we make Caribbean. We all one. 
we don't say we're all different. We all want more. But, and there's a thing with that. Even though we all are different, different language and different, different land, but we all connected to that one. Story where the dog we're not different, we all want more. That part of the cheeky air and when the dog talk. So the saltwater tide connects all the countries. Also, the stories you're saying, the dog story that connects to the Tetuan dog story that connects to other of the Karabing's land. The story now, how I'm all connected. Would or whoever, when I'm trying to make me separate from everybody else, do we still want? So Karabing really has this really strong commitment to having and holding one's own land, but also really maintaining those deep connections that hold together land. So what do you think happened? What they did was they, they came in and they mustered everybody up, took them back and then put them all in mission. And then um, in, a, in, a, in a way they were doing it like, oh, this is not your land, you know. You So they come collected the people from like Nandawuri or and then or Mabalok, the Banukla, wherever they were staying, they mustered them up. <coughs> a lot of family took them and then put them, put them in mission. Then Perry would come in there, sort of took over them. Like Perry came in and said, Look, listen to me, I'm your boss now. You do this and that for me. Yeah. Don't worry about what your elders say and tell you. <laughs> I'm your boss now, I take control of you. Like that. They said they were separating, separating with everybody. Everything is mucked up. Every, white men been bringing the story, probably just forced people to say, come and this for that people in, and that and certain people get, you got, you got TO for that per, for that little area and TO for all kind of area. So the land right recognizes like a traditional owner based on the separate countries. Does it in any ways recognize the deep interdependencies and connections between countries? There's no connection. The land right act didn't do, do anything about that thing. So everything just all fucked oh, up. Yeah. We'll like it. So separate, separate. Separate, separate, yeah. Because um, the government probably said, oh, this land here, we're going to dig the mine there. UTO there, yeah, yeah, yep. You have that land, and then that's how the argument goes, and then that people, that lot, little bit of family get that money for that bit of mining there, and what be tourists running over there, or mine, there's another mine over there, another mine over here, and everything just all, up. and that's how people been fighting. Everyone's a T.O. little bit of land. Everyone T.O. or T.O. for that little bit of land. T.O. of that little bit of land. Then you get a big argument, big fight, spear fight, everybody killing each other. Mm. Because of that, you know, it, it should be like where, where we, where our dreaming been, what we say, tell a story now, our dreaming been think that's how we should be living like. Was it, was it better before land rights? I reckon it would have been more worse. Mm. Yeah. So let's... Talk about how we started making films. Karabin no. first <coughs> yeah. began back in 2007, I think. 
when we were all homeless. We were living at Balga then. Travis said, why don't we make a movie yeah. and tell our story differently that way? 